benefits of it as opposed to how it is that you would fast. There are some materials out on the table that will help you more specifically. There's a few things listed in the bulletin, and that might help you. And you you think, okay, maybe Paul's convinced me after the sermon I should exercise this spiritual discipline. How do I do that? Well, some of that's going to be the burden's not going to be on you because you don't want to hear two or three sermons today. You really just want to hear one. I hope you hear one, one at least hear one. Uh, and so the other information, you'll have to do some reading on your own and some questions. Ask people who have done it before and you can come to me and ask me and uh, we can dialogue some about that. Now, if you're a child here, all right, Matthew Snyder, you're a child here. Uh, there are several other around here I can see. Caroline, Jack, Connor, Jeff. Just think, and parents can think as well. What, what do you think is one of the first words you learned how to respond to as a child? What do you think one, is the, one of the first words? It was probably one of the most popular words your parents said. And it, they, they were able to say it over and over and over again. And in fact, when you started walking, you really started hearing this word. Maybe some of you actually thought this word was your name. What do you think that word is? No. You know what it is, parents, because you remember saying it over and over and over again. And the reason is no, the word no is so important is because as a child, if you don't learn how to respond to the word no, you might find yourself running out into the street. You might stick your finger into a socket or a host of other things. And so one of the things that we all have to learn, whether it's as in a child or an adult, is we have to learn to actually respond to the word no. Most of you have probably been in a house where the children never quite learned how to respond to that word. You ever been in a house like this? And I'm not looking at you like it might be your house. I'm just saying you, you get into these houses and you, you just quickly realize the kids don't understand no. They never got that early on. And it's either sort of chaotic or manipulative or sort of out of control. And it's a kind of a difficult house to be in. I was uh, actually down at the Scotchman getting some gas. And when I was paying for my gas just this last week, there was a a dad and a son in the Scotchman. And I was sort of second or third in line. And so I might have been in the Scotchman for three or four minutes. And the whole three or four minutes, there was a negotiation going on between the dad and the son. And the son started at the big things and he just worked his dad down. He just whittled him down. I could see the dad just shrinking as the negotiation process went on. What can I actually get from my dad while I'm in this store? And of course, the dad said no 50 times. And finally, out of desperation, I felt like I was going to pay for the stuff just to get the kid to quit asking the questions. But that's how it happens. We just need to learn how to respond to the word no. Now, we live in a whole society that's assuming that we can't say no. How many remember the old Lay's potato chip commercial? What was the little phrase? I bet you just you can't eat just one. And what were they really betting on? I'm betting you can't say no. 
open the bag, you eat one, and the whole company is based on the fact that you're not going to be able to exercise no after one chip. A few years ago, two or three years ago, a television show, and I, I could name a hundred of these shows, but this is just the easiest, shallow show I could think of. Um, there was called Temptation Island. You, you remember this? I actually hope you don't remember it. But it was an island full of singles that were beautiful, men and women, and they would drop this couple that's been seriously dating onto the island, and they would find out if the couple could stay together after a week with beautiful singles of the other sex on the island. I mean, how empty can we get? But what were the, all the sponsors hoping for? That somewhere along the line, people weren't going to be able to exercise? No. And you were tuning in, or people were tuning in to see, would people be able to say no? If you ever get into a conversation with somebody about sex education and the abstinence-based sex education, and they're really not for it, Almost all the time you'll hear this. Well, we've got to educate, educate our kids on this because we know they can't say no. Which isn't true, but that's just sort of the way our society is built. Our society, we live in a society built on the, on the premise that you and I are not going to be able to exercise the word no. When we hear the word no, we're not going to be able to respond to it. Now, against this backdrop, Jesus drops in, not only in his own culture, but into our culture. And he says, "Okay, guys, anybody want to follow after me? And all the disciples lean in and say, yeah, I'm interested. Here's the first thing you have to do. You know what it is? If anyone would follow after me, he must first... Deny himself. He must or she must learn how to say no to themselves in order to say yes to Christ. Psalm 1 is a good example of this. Blessed is the man. We've repeated this over and over again. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk. Blessed is the man who doesn't stand. Blessed is the man who doesn't sit. It might as well be, blessed is the man who can say no. Because that's the first way forward is by saying, no, I'm not going in that direction anymore. I'm beginning to go in a different direction. So one of the primary biblical disciplines given to strengthen our ability to say no in lots of areas is to learn how to say no to food. So we learn how to fast and fasting this then has sort of a cascading effect. If you're having difficulty in another area, saying, well, I just can't say no to this, or I just can't say no to that, then fasting is sort of like a, a different avenue to get to that, to say, well, if I can begin to learn how to say no to my bodily needs, then as I come across a need to say no to my tongue, or no to my eyes, or no to my wallet, then I've begun to exercise no in another area, and then hopefully I can say no in these areas as well. So fasting is a critical discipline that we need to exercise. Now, I want to give a little bit more weight and size to the importance of fasting by recalling a couple of events for you. Matthew chapter 4. Remember, in Matthew, the end of Matthew chapter 3, 
Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends on him in some unique way. And then he comes up out of the water. And then what's the very first thing that happens to him? Before he launches out on this worldwide, transformational, universal, altering ministry, the very first thing he does is he spends 40 days learning how to say no. 40 days without food. Now, I'm not recommending a 40-day fast. Some of you are going, good. But somewhere along the line, in order to say no, to be able to conquer some spiritual battles that you have in your life, then you're going to have to say no to your body in some way. And so just before this transformational thing is happening with Jesus' ministry, the first thing he learns how to do is to exercise no to himself. Acts chapter 13. The early church is really still formulating. It's mostly on the east coast of the Mediterranean. And there's a little church called Antioch. And several people are meeting in this church. Two of them are Paul and Barnabas. These, This little church, maybe not any bigger than this church, meeting in a very obscure town on the Mediterranean coast. The church, the early church, sort of locked into the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They have a prayer and fasting event. And from that event, they say, or they're responding to God's voice to say, we should send two of our leaders out past the Mediterranean coast. Let's see if we can move into Asia. Let's see if we can move into Europe. And that little prayer meeting, that group of people fasting, sending out two men, now has sent shockwaves all over the world. If you're in a high school history class, you can't but read about the influence of Christianity all over the world, really because of this little group sending two men and saying, let's see if we can move out. So I'm calling you for two reasons, at least two reasons to fast. One is that many of you have really struggle in saying no to yourself. There's something that just continues to plague and I just can't seem to finally turn away from that. And fasting is at least one of the hammers that God uses to bring transformation in other areas. Secondly, I have a sense that this little church, Christ Community Church, is like the church just before Acts 13. We're meeting together and we're looking for what's the sort of the next wave that would come across our city for Christ. And we want to be in that wave. But to really get in tune with what God's asking us to do and move out beyond our borders, we've got to be people who come together and pray and fast. So two reasons. Now, I think when we turn to this particular text, Paul is going to give us some encouragement to exercise fasting. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 9. 24 through 27. Let me read that again for us. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I'm disciplining my body and I'm keeping it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. If you were to read through 1 Corinthians, one of the things that you would quickly discover is that this new church that Paul has formed in Greece, in this city called Corinth, has a lot of discipline problems. They are apparently a city full and now a church full of people who just have never learned to say no to themselves. Let me give you some examples and you see if any of these seem to sound familiar to you. The church in Corinth, one of their problems were they were caught up in a kind of Christian celebrity contest. Who's your teacher? What conference have you been to? What book have you read? Who are you following? What preacher do you like the best? And it's okay to sort of have favorites, but what happened was they really lost sight of the gospel because they were just focusing on the, on the person or the conference or the book that they liked. And instead of forwarding the gospel, which is always going to be uniting, they were sort of forwarding an agenda or a person or a book or a plan. And the consequence of that was division. You, we could say the people at the church in Corinth couldn't say no to sort of their own self-importance. They wanted to make sure everybody sort of got on their track. And it really wasn't for the gospel. It was really for some other person. Second thing they, or another thing they had a problem with was uh, they had a terrible time controlling their sexual appetite. The people in the church had a terrible time controlling their sexual appetite. In Corinth was a very sexually charged culture, much like America. So those people had heard the gospel, they met Christ, they come in, but they're still battling with these internal things. It's even said that a son was sleeping with his father's wife inside the church at Corinth. And so they couldn't say no to their sexual appetite. People in the pews in Corinth were grumbling against their leaders. They weren't sort of outspoken. They were just sort of ground level. They would walk outside near the information table and they'd sort of get somebody near them. And oh, I don't think they're quite going the right way with that. Did you hear that announcement? I don't know if I would choose that. And they just sort of get a little band of people. I know this is hard to imagine, but they would just sort of get a band of people and they would just sort of grumble and say, you know, I think we, we really ought to be going in this direction instead of that direction. And they really weren't moving the ball forward in any way. They were sort of, again, dividing the group because they wanted, to, wanted people to think, well, well, they had the better way. And they, they just couldn't say no to their tongues. They knew it was wrong, but they just couldn't say no at a juicy piece of information that they could sort of spread out. Finally, some of the people at Corinth had a problem with food. Food for them had become a primary means of satisfaction. I'm feeling empty. I'm feeling lonely. I'm feeling needy. So food becomes a way that we satisfy that need. Or it could be the lack of food does that in some lives. 
But in Corinth, what was happening was instead of just the Lord's Supper like we take, it's a whole meal, kind of like a potluck. And what was happening in Corinth is some of the people who were struggling with food um, addictions, they would eat all the food, and then the people who came at the end, there was no food left. Can you imagine that? So these people just couldn't seem to say no to so many different areas of their life. And Paul comes in, and I think in in the most encouraging way, he wants to paint a picture to say, we're not going in that direction. You've got to think of your life in in a different way. And he paints a picture that every Greek would have understood and every one of us would understand now. Imagine yourself as a runner in the Olympic Games. Now, we can appreciate that as Americans, but if you're in Corinth, you have a heightened appreciation for it. You know somebody that's been in the Olympic Games. You try to get into the Olympic Games yourself. And so Paul is saying, now, I want you to think about yourself as an Olympic contestant. You're, you're not running for a gold medal. You're not running for the cheer of the crowd. You're, you're not running for something that's perishable. You're running for something that is imperishable. Paul says in Second Timothy, we, we run to receive this crown, and he calls it the crown of righteousness. So God's rightness. Now, I want you to put this in your mind, your, your life, you're running a race, and there's a real judge a real king at the end of the race. And he's going to put a real crown on your head. And what Paul is saying is when you cross that line, he's going to finally put this full crown of his rightness on you. And he wants his church to run that race And look at the righteousness of God and say, let that be what you're racing for. Nothing else in this world. I want you to have that picture in place. um, One, because I think that's what Paul would want. But two, because I think there's a pretty stiff warning here. Let's look at verse 27. He's even speaking to himself, but he wants the people in Corinth to hear it. I don't want you to be disqualified. I don't want you to miss the crown. See, the stakes in the way you run your life are infinitely high. It's not just a little wreath that might wither and go away, but it's something that's going to last for all of eternity. So I don't want us to make the mistake that the way we run our race determines our salvation, but the way you run your race displays Your salvation. Does that make sense? The way you're running your race displays your salvation. Jesus Christ has determined your salvation, but we're just looking around and saying, well, if I look at your life, are you displaying that you're running the race for yourself? Are you displaying that you're running the race for God's glory? So we need to ask ourselves that question. And when we do, I have this question of the text. So how do we run in such a way as to get the prize? Yes, I want that righteousness of Christ. 
I'd want it finally to really get rid of this body of death that Paul talks about. I want to keep my eyes on that. I want to run that race. Well, how do we run that race? And Paul gives us the answer in verse 26 and 27. We're not running aimlessly. You imagine an Olympic runner. He's in a lane. He sees the tape. He understands the direction that he's going. He's not like a boxer just boxing the air. He's got a real opponent. Who's his real opponent? Who's the real opponent Paul is talking about in this text? Who are you really boxing? Yourself. You and I have to discipline ourselves. We have to deny ourselves. It's our own body that is the target of our discipline. Now, I'm not talking about cutting yourself or doing things that sometimes you hear about or you would hear about in church history. Uh, I'm talking about something more that I think we can all understand is bringing our body under control of ourselves. The word discipline in the Greek means to strike under the eye. It means to sort of deliver a knockout punch. You can imagine a boxer and if he hits you in the eye, then the guy's knocked out. And so what Paul is saying is you need to look at your body and not let it be overwhelming you. You have to be overwhelming it. You have to deliver this knockout punch. And I think most of us can appreciate the severity of that language because we're struggling with a lot of the same problems the people at Corinth that struggled with. Some of you are struggling with not creating divisions by saying, I'm really following this book or this author or this pastor. You just can't hold out the gospel because you've got some other thing that you really is undermining the nature of the church. Some of you are struggling with sexual dysfunction of all kinds. And you just can't say no. My eyes look and I just can't say no. Many of us have trouble with food. It's either too much food or I'm starving myself. Or I'm doing a lot of other terrible things with my body in terms of food. It has such a controlling feature. It determines my happiness. I don't have my cup of coffee in the morning. Watch out. If you have a, you have a mom like that, I remember that. I could tell if my mom had had her cup of coffee in the morning. And if she hadn't, I mean, I was on the other side of the house. And I would say, Mom, you had that coffee yet? Because, I mean, I just didn't want to have any interaction. And so often we have those sort of appetites for things that really determine how we live our lives. So food becomes a controlling factor. So we begin to defeat the enemies, and those are real enemies, not, not all at once. If I ask you to go run a four-minute mile, probably none of you can do it. But you could begin to train to do it. And the way you begin to defeat those other very significant enemies in your life is you begin to say no to your body. We were in a meeting Wednesday. We meet on Wednesdays and talk about the sermon. And one of the questions was, what's a struggle in your prayer life? 
And two or three people said what I'm sure most of the other people would have said. I just struggle getting up in the morning. You ever find that to be true? You, you, you say it's okay, it's 1130, I'm going to bed, I'm setting my alarm a half hour early, whatever that might be for you, and I want to just get up that half hour early. And the alarm goes off, I just, five more, I just need that five more minutes. You just can't say no to your body. And so if you're struggling with reading your Bible, if you're struggling with prayer, then fasting helps be like a hammer to break that open to say, okay, other things now I can say no to because I've learned how to say no to my body. Thomas Akempis writes this, Restrain from food, and thou shalt the more easily restrain all the inclinations of the flesh. Dallas Willard, fasting teaches self-control and therefore teaches moderation and restraint with regard to all other fundamental drives. So this morning, just briefly, I've tried to give you a picture of the value of fasting. Primarily, it breaks the control of sin in your own life. And that may be to food, but it's probably to a hundred other things. It's also a means that God has used for the whole church to gather to initiate a movement of God across a city or even across the whole planet. So I would suggest this. I would suggest first you do some reading and thinking about this. It's not something you just exercise at this moment. Somebody jokingly said beforehand, you should just ask them. You'll see how powerful your sermon is if we could exercise fasting right now. So you'd have to walk by the donut table. I mean, your first temptation. But I'm not actually asking you to do it right now. But you need to talk to somebody. You need to think through this. You need to pick up the information out on the, uh, on the front table and say, okay, how do I think through this biblically? What would it mean like, be like for me? Would I take one meal? Would I take a half a day? Would I take a whole day? Would I begin to develop so I could take three days of fasting at some point during the year? It's not a diet plan. I'm not asking us to all go on diets. I'm asking us to think about how God would want to break a stronghold in your own life. And one of the hammers he's going to use is the discipline of fasting. Finally, I'd ask you just to begin. We can talk about the spiritual disciplines of reading your Bible. We can talk about the spiritual disciplines of prayer. We can talk about the spiritual disciplines of fasting. But in the end, you have to begin. You just have to say, yeah, Monday, Wednesday, the mornings I'm going to get up and read my Bible. Whatever that is, you have to begin in some way. So think through, talk with somebody else and say, hey, could you help me? I'm not going to tell everybody. I'm just going to tell one person. Hey, could you help me? Could you hold me accountable? Could I talk to you about this? It's only appropriate that on the Sunday, providentially, that we talk about fasting, that we come to the feast. The bread of life. In a world that's not going to satisfy your hungers. Do you remember when Jesus, at the end of a wedding, weddings then were like eight days long. 
And they've eaten and they've drunk everything they possibly can. And all these people must have just been stuffed at the eighth day. And you know what Jesus does? He stands up in the middle of that crowd and says, Is anybody thirsty? Thirsty. We're stuffed. Yeah, but are you still empty? Have you stuffed yourself with all the things the world could provide and you still say, I still have a hunger in my soul? Come. Come to me. I am the bread of life. He who takes from this, never be thirsty again. Never be hungry again. The greatest picture of the discipline of saying no is the cross. Come down from the cross, then I'll believe in you. No. Oh, you can, you can have angels come. No. They hit him. Who, who hit you? No. His exercise of no means yes to eternity. So now as children, as co-heirs with Christ, those who have trusted in Christ, they come, you come forward this morning and you're saying when you come forward, no. No to the world. I'm, I'm turning my back on the world. I'm not trying to get my satisfaction from those things anymore. Yes. Yes to eternal life. Yes to the King of Kings. Yes to the crown that lasts forever. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, food was used to break an eternal covenant in Genesis chapter 3 between Adam and Eve and the serpent. Two thousand years ago, you began to write that in a way that's still unfolding and will unfold in the future by a meal as well. But instead of abstaining from something, you reversed it and said, come, you come and have this meal. So for those who haven't come, who haven't trusted in Christ, may they remain in their seats and consider the emptiness of the world and their need for something eternal. For those who are trusting in you and still battling to say no, may they come and take the bread of life. To exercise self-control and discipline so they, they may run the race and they themselves will not be disqualified. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask the elders to come forward. And as the music plays, you remember the sacrifice of Jesus who shed his blood for you.
who gave his body for you. He is the bread of life. Come and be satisfied.